Have you ever wondered where creativity comes from and why some people seem to have more than their fair share of original ideas? Uh, the best book I've ever read on this subject about how each of us is actually has the capacity to be a lot more creative than some of us have been taught we can be is called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Have any of you done that 12-week course? Quite a few of you. I recommend it if you're interested in uh, getting more in touch with your creativity. Relatedly, one of my favorite quotes about how each of us should explore, uh, why each of us should explore our creative side is from the modern dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, who said that there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you, through each of you, into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will be lost and never exist through any other medium. The world will just not have it. So maybe it's not your business to determine in advance how good you think it will be or how valuable it might be or how it compares to other expressions of creativity. It's simply your business to keep the channel open clearly and directly. In that spirit, I'd like to invite us to spend just a little time reflecting on what insights there might be for us from the life and work of David Lynch, one among many contemporary artists who have kept their creativity channel open for a lifetime. I spent some time this summer revisiting um, Lynch's life and work inspired by the surprising release of Twin Peaks Season 3, surprising for the most part because there was a 25-year gap between Season 2 and Season 3. And even though uh, certainly uh, season three of Twin Peaks was not the biggest show of the summer, the biggest show of the summer was Game of Thrones, uh, weighing in at about 16 million viewers. And I like Game of Thrones. It's, it's very good, even though it has its problems, as do all shows. But I would agree with many critics that potentially Showtime's Twin Peaks season three, with its much more modest two million viewers, uh, may have been the best show of the summer, and it is arguably David Lynch's masterpiece. That being said, my goal is not to persuade you to watch Twin Peaks. David Lynch is not everyone's jam. Uh, but even without watching a minute of his work, there are some potential insights for us from his creativity that could apply to us trying to engage our own creativity. However, just for my own curiosity, how many of you either back in the day or on Netflix or whatever have watched some or all of season one or two of Twin Peaks? Okay, quite a few of you. Any season three people out there? All right, just a few. We had one or two in the first um, uh, service as well. So to tell you just a little bit of my story with about engaging Lynch's work, it begins on April 8th, 1990. I was uh, probably too young. I was 12. And along with uh, 35 million other Americans, I tuned in to watch the two-hour pilot of Twin Peaks. Uh, 35 million, that's more than twice as many as tuned in for Game of Thrones. We live in a very different era of television today. It used to be that the nation watched TV together and had this national conversation. That's not as much the case today. But the surreal, dreamlike, uncanny nature of the show was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and I was not alone in my fascination. The show was a hit, and who killed Laura Palmer became a national conversation. There are stories of Gorbachev around that time meeting with Reagan and saying, uh, I guess with Bush, and saying, can you find out for me who killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> in a Russian accent, I'm sure. 
Uh, he couldn't. <laughs> Media critics have long said that Twin Peaks changed television. Part of what they mean is that the co-creators, uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch, they brought a level of sophistication and particularly a willingness to experiment with the unconventional that was sometimes seen in film but was not seen in television, particularly popular television until then. Cinema-level cinema quality on TV, that's actually not unusual today. We live in an era known as prestige TV. But it was unusual in the early 90s. And uh, think about that Martha Graham quote from earlier. Lynch's willingness to experiment with creating this quirky and strange and unsettling show, it gave future generations permission to do the same. And I invite you to think about the various fields you may be involved with. Who are the paradigm shifters who give people, the, the innovators that give people after them permission to engage their creativity and take risks and experiments? So, you know, part of why Twin Peaks changed TV is that if you talk to the creators of shows like X-Files and Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and Lost, they all say that Twin Peaks was a major influence and that they likely wouldn't have gotten into television and been able to do the things that they did with those shows if Twin Peaks hadn't existed. And as excited as I was to see what it might be like to return to Twin Peaks 25 years later, I haven't really been a diehard fan over the years. After watching the first two seasons of Twin Peaks back in the early 90s, I basically didn't think of it again for about a decade until I was in college and took a film studies class, and one of our assignments was to watch Blue Velvet. Anybody seen, anybody scarred from Blue Velvet in the, in the room? Uh, I found the film, that 86 film, both uh, gripping and disturbing. In researching the, the film for a paper, my mind was blown when I realized that David Lynch, the creator of Twin Peaks, was the director of Blue Velvet. I suddenly connected that Blue Velvet had made me feel those same kinds of uncanny, surreal, unsettling, dreamlike um, responses that I first had in response to some of the most powerful scenes in Twin Peaks. The late American critic um, Pauline Kael famously wrote in The New Yorker that as she was leaving the theater after seeing the film Blue Velvet, she overheard the person in front of her whisper to a friend, maybe I'm sick, but I want to see that again. Riffing on that line, the writer David Foster Wallace said that if that word sick seems excessive to you, maybe substitute the word creepy. Lynch seems to be one of those people with an unusual access to their own unconscious. And keep that mind in line for exploring what it means to be creative, because having access to your unconscious is part of what it means. Uh, Lynch's movies seem to be exper exper experiences of kind of getting in touch with the director's psyche and, ex and, and ex expressed with very little inhibition. And that's also a part of what it means to be creative, a willingness to risk sharing your inner life in a way that's transparent and uninhibited. It's the psychic intimacy of Lynch's work that can make it hard to sort out exactly what you're feeling about David Lynch's movies or maybe about David Lynch himself. The ad hominem impression one tends to carry away from a Blue Velvet or a Fire Walk With Me, that's the film prequel to Twin Peaks, is that these are really powerful movies, but I'm not sure that David Lynch is someone I'd want to get stuck next to on a long flight. Except here's the thing. In contrast to his art, in person, Lynch presents much more like his background, like an Eagle Scout from Missoula, Montana, who wears his shirts buttoned all the way to the top because he doesn't like his neck exposed. 
In reference to the classic straight-laced, down-to-earth actor, David Lynch has been called Jimmy Stewart from Mars. And he was raised in a fairly idyllic 1950s white picket fence neighborhood. But from an early age, he talks about having this sense that there was a deeper truth. He sensed that there was something disturbing underneath the surface that people weren't talking about in suburbia. Of course, he was right, not for the least of which reasons, that in the early 1950s were before the civil rights movement and much of America in particular was repressing truths about racial injustice, uh, a trend that continues today in even more insidious ways. But for Lynch, the even deeper truth was about nature itself. He remembers a a memory of a cherry tree from his childhood at Spokane, Washington, that from a distance he remembers thinking how beautiful the tree was. But one time when he got closer to it, he saw there was ooze coming out of the tree, uh, a pitch, um, some black, some of it yellow, and there were all these red ants crawling all over it. So he says there's this beautiful world, but sometimes when you look a little bit closer, it's all red ants. Similar scenes from Lynch's work remind me of a lesson I learned many years ago in my spiritual direction training. Our assignment was to go into nature and to take pictures of images that resonated with us. After watching a slideshow of all the photographs we had taken, the instructor said, there's something missing, and gave us a while, and we kind of talked through, we got a bunch of wrong answers, and she said, no, what's missing? And finally we realized that every single one of our images was gorgeous, was beautiful. And she challenged us to go back out and take a few more pictures to wrestle with the truth that authentic spirituality is about a willingness to engage with an open mind and an open heart, the fullness of life, which includes the messiness. Not only the beautiful, but also the awkward, and sometimes the repulsive, even the grotesque. Relatedly, one historic weakness of theologically liberal traditions like our own of Unitarian Universalism has been a naive optimism. In rejecting the extreme pessimism, and I think this is a good part, I think it's good that our forebears rejected the extreme pessimism of some religious orthodoxies, things like human beings being born with original sin, or that uh, all human nature, humans are totally depraved, or that the world is inherently corrupt. Um, and a veil of tears. So it was good to reject some of that extreme pessimism. But then we went to the other extreme, and many of our progressive ancestors overestimated the perfectibility of human nature, the possibility of building utopian communities, the uh, inevitability that things were just going to keep in ne- keep progress onward and upward forever. Uh, whereas many religious Orthodox traditions have overestimated as well evil as literally real. Uh, often liberal religious traditions have underestimated evil as something that we can just overcome through our reason, and often that hasn't worked out. In contrast, a willingness to explore the shadow side of human nature is another aspect that I appreciate about Lynch, even if it's also disturbing. David Foster Wallace writes about Lynch that Lynch is not really interested in making moral judgments about his characters. He's interested in the psychic spaces in which each of us has the capacity to do evil in the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances. Lynch's movies are not about monsters. They're not about people with an intrinsic nature that is evil. They're about hauntings. They're about evil as environment, as possibility, as force. 
What's also clear to me now in a way that was over my head at age 12 when I first encountered Lynch's work is that he's deeply influenced by the artistic movement known as Expressionism. As opposed to realists who seek to objectively replicate the world in their art. So to, you, you know, that's a pear, I'm going to draw an image of a pear, and it's going to look just like a pear, right? Uh, expressionists present their art from a subjective perspective. They, dis- they distort it for emotional effects. If you think about, like, Monet's water lilies, right? He could have painted precisely photorealistic water lilies, but he didn't. He painted, in part, the impression of water lilies, the feeling that they gave him, and then that continued as expressionism continued. So things done for an emotional effect, to evoke a mood or idea. Um, let me say more about that from a different angle. When I was younger, I remember dismissing modern art with that classic, infantile, uninformed criticism that it looks like a kindergartner could do it, right? You've probably heard that. As I learned more about art history, I finally got it and became a huge fan of abstract expressionism. The analogy that helped me most was to music. Visual art, like music, it doesn't have to be about something. You'll hear people say something about art. What's it about? What's it supposed to be? Well, it may not represent anything, just as music may not represent anything. Um, Visual art can just be about experiment with color and line, just like music can just be about experiment with sound. Or like music, visual art can be an abstract expression of a subjective inner emotional state, seeking to represent or present or be a manifestation of a mood. Lynch's films, including season three of Twin Peaks, are deeply expressionistic. He's spoken of his work as he was originally a painter, that is essentially moving paintings is a lot of what his um, work is about. There are less secret codes to be solved, though people spend a lot of time trying to unlock these codes, and much more about mysteries to be explored. They're intentionally subjective. They're more about, they're more intended to be experienced than explained. And they often operate on an emotional, unconscious, archetypal level. For instance, working, um, watching his work almost always triggers me the next morning to remember my dreams much more vividly and um, sharply than I might otherwise. So what part of that might we apply to ourselves? Well, regarding his creative process over a lifetime, Lynch says that for him, ideas are like fish. He says if you want to catch a little fish, You stay in the shallow water and you don't take much time. But if you want to catch the big fish out of your unconscious, it takes more time to go deeper where the fish are more powerful and pure. And he said down there they're huge and abstract. And for him, he says, I look for the kind of fish that are important to me, ones that I can translate into cinema. But he said, I'll assure you, there are fish down there for business, fish fish for sports, there are fish for everyone. And I have a sense of what he means. Maybe some of you do as well. There are times when I'm working on a sermon or trying to come up with a program idea or a creative solution to a problem or a conflict, and I'll feel stuck. And if I carve out even a little time, if I take the dogs for a walk or I exercise or go for a drive, often I'll find that sort of unexpectedly, if I'm kind of working on it in the back of my head, all of a sudden I'll catch an idea, a solution unexpectedly. But note, again, the caveat that deep down, for those really original ideas, it takes a lot of time and space to go fishing for those most pure and um, powerful ideas. 
It's an invitation to slow down and give your space, self space to catch an even bigger fish. And along those lines, one of the mottos of my spiritual direction program was, we're going to try to start slowly so that later we can slow down. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm still a contemplative work in progress. Uh-huh. Part of how Lynch has cultivated space to fish for ideas in his own life is through a decades-long practice of transcendental meditation. Lynch says that he's practiced transcendentalism, transcendental meditation, the recommended 20 minutes twice a day, every single day without missing a session since 1973. So a little over 40 decades. He's such a quirky person, I actually believe that he's probably done that. I don't always believe what everyone tells me about how much they meditate, but... Uh, Since Lynch continues to be a major advocate for transcendental meditation, or TM, let me say just a little bit about that. TM came to America through the late Maharashi Mahesh Yogi, uh, who attracted many celebrity students. So part of how it came to be so popular is that the Beatles were doing TM, and Rolling Stones, and Jefferson Airplane, and the Beach Boys, and the Doors were all doing uh, transcendental meditation, going to meet with the Yogi. The movement's peak was in the 1970s. Part of what happened is around 1977, not around 1970, in 1977, the movement jumped the shark. It overpromised in the form of a new TM City program, S-E-D-D-H-I, that related to the historic claims and some traditions of Buddhism that deep meditation can cultivate so-called psychic powers. Now, I'm, I'm not... It's another whole discussion about what that means and what it can mean, but what I am saying is that TM vastly oversimplified and overpromised in brochures saying that faithful adherents, if you started doing many, many hours of TM instead of just 20 minutes twice a day, they said you'll be able to cultivate yogic flying, you'll be able to hover over the ground, that devotees would have the ability to know the past and future, knowledge of other minds, the ability to become invisible, passage through the sky. They wrote all this down in brochures. Those grandiose claims were never demonstrated, and many adherents became deeply disillusioned. Nevertheless, it remains true that many people have benefited from spending 20 minutes twice a day practicing transcendental meditation. From a 21st century perspective, I would add that there are also many other beneficial meditation techniques, and what scientific studies are increasingly showing us is that different meditation techniques affect different parts of our brain. It's not super shocking, right? Like, it's just like curls do different things for you than squats to your body, right? Transcendental meditation is a mantra-based practice, but there, and it's, which is a great thing to do. There are many other types of contemplative practices, like concentration meditation, mindfulness, inquiry practices, uh, heartfulness, embodiment, and others. And similar, so similar to the benefits of cross-training for physical fitness, it's also helpful to cross-train in your spiritual practices for your spirit and for your mind. Science is showing us that we get stronger and better often at the things we practice. So that people that do concentration meditation, the part of your brain related to concentration gets stronger. When you do compassion, loving kindness meditation, the area of your brain associated with compassion gets stronger. It builds more gray matter. Likewise, if you practice being non-judgmental, just noticing what's coming up for you, noting it and letting it pass on non-judgmentally, you get better at being less judgy. Likewise, we get more creative by practicing creativity. So in the days to come, 
where might you carve out some margin in your life? That's easier for some of us than others, but where might you find some time and space to do a little fishing in your unconscious? Perhaps in the shallow waters at first, but then maybe taking some more time to experiment with casting the line down deep where the fish are more powerful and more pure. What ideas might be waiting for us? They're just there in our unconscious, waiting for us to make the time and space for them to emerge. We've got a little time, so I'm going to tell you a little more. Sometimes when I think about the difference between creativity and science, and of course science is deeply creative as well, but the difference between maybe what David Lynch means by the art life and science that gives us like the iPhone, right? That clearly science, the scientific method is an incredibly powerful tool, but what science tends to be like um, when it works, when a hypothesis is coming, is proving to be the, the case, is it's like a really powerful spotlight and it really illuminates something. But here's the thing, outside that spotlight, there's a lot of darkness and sometimes it's worth looking around in the dark for what might be there and that's some of what the uh, the artist life can point us to in the in spiritual practices so let me give you just three quick examples of uh, what else I'm uh, from David Lynch's life of one way he's creative and really open to um, what are called synchronicities so Jung synchronicities are meaningful coincidences at least meaningful to you in a subjective way that Jung talked about if you want access to your unconscious, two of the best ways are to pay attention to your dreams at night and to pay attention to synchronicities during the day. That that'll, um, it's, it's, it's certainly sub, sub, more subjective than objective. I'll give you three examples of that. Um, have any of you ever seen a picture, either watched Twin Peaks or seen a picture of Killer Bob? So he has long, strangely gray hair. So if you haven't, you can Google it later. He's one of, one of television's scariest villains. And that the way that David cast him is that it's a guy named Frank Silva. Apparently the nicest guy in the world. He was on the crew of, of, he was on the crew of, of Twin Peaks. And he was, his face accidentally got caught in the mirror of a shot. He was like holding a boom mic. And so they showed it to Lynch during the dailies and said, do we need to reshoot this? Because, um, Frank's face accidentally got shot. And David was like, wait a second. He's the killer. He killed Laura Palmer. And so they then cast him, and he became part of the cast. And he was really open to that. Uh, Another example is he was trying to cast... uh, Officer Andy, for any of you, again, that know the show, real tall and lanky, and he he couldn't find the right person for the part. And finally, he realized the perfect fit was his driver. So that actor used to be David Lynch's driver uh, before he became an actor. The third example is that Laura Dern, who's been in a lot of uh, Lynch's movies, uh, was trying to convince him to do another movie, which turned out to be his last movie, Inland Empire. And um, he wasn't necessarily convinced. He wasn't sure he wanted to do another movie. And finally, she she was telling him a little about her life and said, you know, my husband's working for this company called Inland Empire. And he said, hold on, that's it. That's the movie. And he wasn't sure why yet, but he just knew the Inland Empire, there was something to that. And then it took him a little bit, but he realized, he went back and looked at some of his childhood things, and he had made a drawing when he was very young uh, and called, entitled it Inland Empire. There was something deep in that and something that he was like, yes, there, there's a movie there that I can make. So, um, so as you go from this um, place into the days to come, continue your journey in love.
care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace or joy, whatever sense you've had that maybe there is some creative potential within you, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.